0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for unifying us in such a unique way. Thank you for keeping our Lord and Savior as the centerpiece of our lives and giving us the opportunity to learn to gather around Him, to fellowship with each other through our faith, with Him as the center of our lives father we know that you love us we also know that we're slow to learn and so we thank you for your loving kindness and your own slowness to anger with us and of course your patience father we pray for those that can't be with us this evening for legitimate reasons and we pray for those that aren't here for the wrong reasons that they see the error in their ways father We pray also for those that are still lost, and also we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work to make an evening like this a reality. May we never become familiar with it. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me, I still have a little bit of a cough. Again, the message title is, The Lord is Our Confidence. The Spirit led Scott to encourage me uh, to use the remainder of his message notes from Tuesday's message. Um, It's rare that I do that uh, just because it's just the way it normally goes. But in this case, for whatever reason, the Spirit uh, moved uh, him first and then moved me uh, in such a way that he must want this content that was at the end of Scott's notes to be presented to you all and so here we go the final slide as far as scott got uh, on tuesday from part five in the lord is our confidence was this up here on the board <coughs> first timothy three four to five see here that a father must first prove himself worthy in his own household because the analog to his household fatherhood is the fatherhood he has over the household of faith. Um, That's something we read, again, in a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. And there is an absolute analog there, and it makes a whole lot of sense if you understand Holy Scripture on the nature and the relationship of a shepherd to uh, his sheep. So it's a healthy uh, thing to look at your pastor as having this fatherly role in your life. If for no other reason than for your own benefit. That is the whole point. I'm not here to lord over you. That I have scripture against me from doing that, um, from precluding me from doing that. And trust me, if I ever go that route, um, you're not the first one to tell me it's God, the Holy Spirit, uh, who corrects me uh, quite readily. So, uh, if for no other reason, for your own benefit, think this way. It's a good thing. So I was thinking about that, and I think Scott had this in his notes, that pride has a habit of getting in the way, though, doesn't it? The flesh always opposes correction and resists authority in general. The flesh does not like authority because it's anti teshuka Teshuka wants to dominate. Authority dominates, and so it's against the very nature of the human flesh, to submit to any form of authority. And I believe that because of the nature um, of a shepherd's dealings with his sheep, this resistance, this natural resistance, is at an all-time high. For example, I, Ed Collins, can tell someone that I think they made a poor choice in their fantasy football roster. And that person might grumble a little bit, uh, but nothing ever comes of it. Uh, Honestly, most of the time they might ask me why I think what I do. It might be a, you know, a conversation starter looking, you know, they might be looking for some information that might give them an advantage that week or something like that. However, if I pastor Collins, tell a sheep of mine that they are out of line, the reaction is always much, much greater. And frankly, I have to be patient and I have to patiently await what I'll call the initial wave of emotion that spills out of a person. I often have to leave them alone for a while, sometimes for days or even weeks. I've had months go by before a person actually got over their emotional outburst. So I have to patiently, (coughs) I have to patiently await uh, until the emotion subsides uh, Before I can even hope to hear them asking me poignant questions about why I've judged a situation the way I have in fact many people won't even get around uh, To asking me for insight because they are too arrogant or possibly too cowardly to do so And like I mentioned on Sunday it's usually people around my own age I'd say plus or minus 10 years or so. Uh, that would be like 40 to probably 55. I mean, I'm 50, but you get the point. <laughs> it usually has something to do with um, someone around my own age. Those people tend to suffer with this malady the most. And my suspicion is that it's the old high school, you know, peer type stupidity that cripples them. But I'll leave that analysis for another day back to scott's final point from tuesday it's healthy to look at your pastor as having a fatherly role in your life if for no other reason than for your own benefit only a foolish child resists his father's authority and the same goes for the foolish believer who resists his pastor's authority And you know what? Foolish is the correct word here. If you remember the Greek word afron up here on the board from our survey of Ephesians 5.17, which read, so then, do not be foolish. And that was that Greek word afron. It means to lack perspective because of short-sightedness. That's one thing. One of the symptoms of emotionalism is that people can't get out of their own way in that moment. They can't see beyond the redness, if you would, the emotional outburst. And so they become very short-sighted in their perspective. And that's the basis of foolishness. So Afron means to lack perspective because of a short-sightedness. For example, lacking the big picture perspective needed to act prudently. But again, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the will of the Lord on this evening's topic in the past few uh, evenings? Put it this way, just concentrate for a moment. What is the will of the Lord and what do we need to understand about his will? Specifically when it comes to uh, shepherds and sheep and their relationship. It was the spirit of the Lord. So we want to understand what the will of the Lord is. It was the Spirit of the Lord that gave me and every other true shepherd this spiritual gift. It was His Spirit that gave me this spiritual gift. And you know what? He has never once made a mistake in His eternal existence. Not once has He made a mistake. doesn't mean someone can't come along and stand behind a pulpit and say they're a shepherd, but that's a different story. So the Spirit of the Lord gave me this spiritual gift, he has also never made a mistake in his entire eternal existence. He is also the one who didn't make a mistake when he inspired Holy Scripture that explicitly describes governance over the body of Christ. Same spirit, same Lord. So if he chose perfectly and he also commands Perfectly, then it's your job to obey Perfectly now granted with the disclaimer even though you never will be perfect that obedience of course That's what good intention looks like your intention is to obey perfectly That's the ultimate goal to obey in every way and so if he's perfect The flip side is that you're perfect in your obedience. That's the end goal for all of us Now, reflect on that. The shepherd sheep relationship is very special in so many ways. I may not have supper with you ever. I may never go out for lunch with you because you guys are too cheap. (laughs) I'm just, come on, you can laugh it up. (laughs) I may not have any kind of relationship, personal or otherwise. With you, but that does not change my relationship to you. We don't have to be especially good, quote unquote, friends. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I have a spiritual gift, and your job is to submit to it. And so the shepherd sheep relationship is very special in so many ways. I actually recall one of you telling me, this was a while ago, that. I have the greatest place of import in your life because you have surrendered your soul to my unique care to watch over it. And this came from one of the most exhausting sheep I've ever had to lead. You see, it's the Bible, or it's as the Bible states up here on the board, the weight of shepherdhood. With great power comes great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12, 48. I do not take it lightly that I've been commissioned to judge rightly over my flock. Trust me, the shepherd-sheep relationship is very unique and personal and not just corporate. So no one has the right to defile, diminish, or intrude upon that relationship. No one. Again, with great power comes great responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. This shepherd-sheep relationship is very unique and personal. It is not just corporate. I don't just look at you as a congregation. Is that in my view? Of course it is. How's the congregation doing as a whole? But I can't comprise that thing, that viewpoint, if I don't understand what each individual person is doing as an individual. And judge rightly as to what i understand to be true no one has the right to defile diminish or intrude upon that relationship so let's look at the heart of a true shepherd for a moment starting with our great shepherd go to john 13:33 john 13:33 John 13:33 beginning with our great shepherd Just look at this man's heart and look at how he approaches his own John 13:33 He says, "Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come." Were these little children age-wise? No. It's the nature of the relationship that Jesus Christ looked at them as his own, as a father would look at his own. Little children, he said, and then he went on. You don't have to read much of Jesus' words to see the type of relationship he, as a shepherd, had with his sheep. His relationship is our prototype for his under-shepherds. That's why we're called under shepherds. He's my prototype. And you know what? It is fatherly. It is fatherly. Honest to God, this this may sound awful, but sometimes I wish it wasn't because it's really hard. Like I taught my kids, it's really hard to be a good parent. Is that fair to say? It's really hard. And when you're the head of the household, it's really hard to be a good father. And so sometimes, frankly, Uh, You know, (laughs) I was, you know, all along, 10 years ago, I was like, hey, man, in 10 years, I'm out of this game. I'm going to like sit back and I'm going to enjoy my twilight years. Here's 50 or 60 more. (laughs) What? Sometimes I just don't want it. You understand? Because it's a burden. I don't mean to say that in the wrong way. And I don't, I'll take it. It is what it is. Um. But it is fatherly, uh, and that's something you all need to learn. Fathers always love, though the expression changes depending on whether it's the rod or the staff that is required in a situation. The apostle of love, which is John, had the privilege of being raised up by Jesus personally in the faith. And as is the case with earthly father-son relationships, You can often see a lot of a a good father, uh, for in this case Jesus, in a good son, in this case John. Therefore, John spoke to his own sheep with the same affection that Jesus did. And he even used similar language. Go to 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. So you see the Son, or you see the Father in the Son here. You see the same heart being passed down and being expressed out of love. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, sound familiar? I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Because that's what a father wants. Why do you think I stand up here and teach all these tough lessons? It's because I don't want you guys destroying yourselves. I want you to see... What sin looks like. I don't want you to be be deceived by it. I don't want you to continue on in the ways of the world. I don't want you to be encouraged by the world because you're hurting yourselves. That's what love looks like. So he writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How about verse 12? 1 John 2.12 He says, "I am writing to you, little children, again, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake." How about verse 28? Verse 28. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Excuse me. How about uh, verse 3:7? Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he as is righteous. We literally just finished a 75-part series on that. That was our launching pad. Little children, you see a father's love, make sure no one deceives you. What do you think all those tough lessons were about? It was from a father trying to protect his children, trying to teach his children the truth about what goes on in this world, about the de- the deceitfulness of sin. That's where that came from. Our whole series came from there. How about verse 18, same chapter? <coughs> Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. How many times have I taught that to this congregation? No more lip service. Don't just tell me you're doing this or that. How about you do it? How about verse 4 of chapter 4? 4 verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. A father is all about encouraging his children. And then finally, look at chapter 5 verse 21. But he's also very much very diligent about keeping guard over his own. Verse 21, "...little children, guard yourselves from idols." Up here on the board. What we have then on this notion of little children, this is a term of affection used by both Jesus and the Apostle John. It reveals, I should see, it, not I. (laughs) It reveals the nature of the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. While there's a corporate responsibility to the flock, each individual sheep is accounted for and tended to. And you should know that. You should know that. That uh, I, for one, uh, being a, a type of father in your life, I do care about you as an individual. Every single last one of you, It's one of my arguments about megachurches. I don't understand how uh, an individual can actually say they um, can care about 50,000 people as individuals. I don't get it. I know they make a lot of money, so they care about that, but I'm not quite convinced that a church, when it gets that size, uh, is able to do what I know I have to do as a father over the flock. But that's another story. Again, while there's a corporate responsibility to the flock, Each individual sheep is accounted for and tended to. Jesus even told parables about this unique relationship. Go to Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. The shepherd-sheep relationship is all over the New Testament, as well as the Old. But Jesus certainly used it uh, in his parables. Luke 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So just step back for a moment. Consider the fact that Jesus knew exactly who he was dining with at all times. It's not like he was ignorant. He knew who he was dining with. He knew them as individuals with individual strengths and weaknesses and he judged he judged that some had true humility while others were hypocrites and that was paramount as we've seen the thing that Jesus really despised more than anything was hypocrisy that's why we say let our let our love be without hypocrisy let us not love as hypocrites love let's truly love the way Christ did Christ knew that these people were sinners. Some of them might have been prostitutes, uh, tax collectors. Who knows what they were doing, right? I mean, no worse than us. Who knows? But he sat with them. And you know what he said? At least they're humble. At least he's not a bunch. At least these people aren't hypocrites. And that's what I look for in you guys. I know that everybody makes mistakes and everybody's doing stupid stuff. But at least you're humble. My God, just the last of 10 years this church has been open, you have to be humble, right? You've been beaten down so many times. You'd have to be humble. Again, he judged that some had true humility while others were hypocrites. Imagine if judging weren't. Just imagine this. So there's Jesus sitting there. He knows who he's sitting with. (coughs) He judged rightly uh, all the way. Imagine if judging, though, weren't within the rightful boundaries of a shepherd's responsibilities. In that case, even Jesus would have been handcuffed by the human flesh, disallowed from making plain statements such as, you will know them by their fruits. And just make a mental note there, you will know them by their fruits. That is plural, which means that we do have the ability to look at more than one fruit. In other words, you might have fruit A, B, and C. You might have fruit 1, 2, 3. Someone else might have A, 1, and 3. I don't know. But it's fruits plural. And you will know them by their fruits. That means you have the right to judge that way. Matthew seven twenty. Again, look at verse 2 here. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Which one? When he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you see how out of a hundred sheep, one unique one had drifted astray, and so the shepherd put all his might into rescuing it? Do you see it? I guess technically he could have chalked it up as a loss, right? Could have just chalked it, eh, one ain't bad. No, that's not a shepherd's heart at all. That's the same kind of love a father has for his children if he had a hundred of them. He's not going to just let one float off into the ether and be like, I got 99 left. If he did, there would be something wrong with that man. So that is the same kind of love a father has for his children. If he had a hundred of them, losing even one of them would break his heart. You see, I've always said that I could handle just about any tragedy. Oh my God, I'm going to cry just talking about this. This is how, this is how powerful this is. I've always said that I can handle just about any tragedy in this life, but losing one of my sons, I think would push me to my outer limits. And ironically, both the military men, God loves to test our faith, doesn't he? Getting back to uh, Paul now, another fine example of a true shepherd. Go to 1 Corinthians 4 verse 14. 4 verse 14, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4:14. 4, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my what beloved children similar language as jesus and john that makes total sense for if you were to have countless tutors in christ yet you would have you would not have many fathers for in christ jesus i became your father through the gospel therefore i exhort you be imitators of me again being a shepherd is a type of fatherhood up here on the board the Bible teaches us that fathers have the highest authority in families. We are to submit to our fathers. Fathers are to evaluate and judge rightly over their children. A fool rejects his father's discipline. I always get a kick out of this. Um, people that have a history of, of bucking authority. And um, it's funny because I would have died to have a, a real stand-up, real father in my life growing up. Would have would have paid everything I had to have that thing in my life. Why? Because it would have been a sense of security. And yet people who have real fathers, you're looking at one of them, moan and groan about the authority in their life and how it's oppressive and this kind of a thing. And they don't realize the sense of confidence and security that they're given by having that authority well put and solid in their life. It's just a funny something to think about kids that want fathers, people that don't have fathers really long for them. Just thirst for any kind of stability that a father figure offers, any kind of family whether it's a family in a home or a family in a church. And yet, the people who have it turn around and complain. And that is a fool. That's Proverbs 15:5. A fool rejects his father's discipline. As Scott mentioned on Tuesday fools fail to keep seeing the big picture whenever you know whenever their cages are rattled like uh, Scott said it's funny how we all we don't mind we like the security when the father's taking care of our siblings But when it's us all of a sudden everything's different all of a sudden it's unfair. It's no longer you know It's oppressive this kind of a thing. Nobody likes to uh, actually own up to their own failures They don't like to be judged They like to judge, that's for sure. The fool doesn't understand, or maybe just temporarily loses sight of a father's love for them. When we disobey our heavenly father, we are in essence saying, I don't really trust you in that area. I don't trust your love for me. And it's the same way when we disobey an earthly father or a spiritual father. Up here on the board, we got this on Sunday Sunday. Don't ever dishonor God's divinely ordained chain of command by saying something eternally foolish like, why do you care what your father thinks about you? The Bible clearly states that it does matter what your father's, plural, your father in heaven, your earthly father, and your shepherd think about you. Why? They all, all of them have been charged to look after your soul, and they report to God in my case, as your father, your spiritual father, I report directly to my uh, shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, my Lord. I don't report to you, I report to him. And you have to respect that, that if I'm out of line, he's going to let me know. And if you don't believe that connection exists in my life, then honest to God, right now, make this your last message in this pul- from this pulpit. Go find somebody who you believe is actually inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ. I beg you. But if you do believe that this spiritual gift has been bestowed on me, and therefore this pulpit, then you need to to do your part, and that is to submit. And don't try to weasel your way out with sayings like the one on the board. What do you care about what he thinks about you? The final slide in Scott's notes that he didn't get to, is this one, that authority is God-given. Be set free by submitting to those who God has over you for your own good. Be set free by it. There's so much goodness in having a good father looking out for you. There's so much goodness to be able to... look Look around. Right now we're undisturbed. The door is locked in the back. We even have a sign that says, don't come in here. These people are learning. They're fellowshipping. All of that stuff should give you comfort. Knowing that you can come to a place like this and yours truly is standing here faithfully, sick half the time lately. And here I am. To DJ's point, uh, he'll say that you all have become familiar. And I would agree that in many ways you have become familiar, Uh, but that's a different story in another lesson for another day in Scott's words. And I'm reading his notes here, not my words. These are from his notes, quote, we have a pastor primarily motivated by the love of Christ and one who possesses the love of a father. Let's put our pride aside and instead thank God for his provision of grace End quote, (laughs) <laughs> with that said, let's continue on with part six of the Lord is our confidence. And I was thinking about it. Um, this is part six, and he's already said a whole bunch to this congregation. And I was thinking that so much of what the Spirit has been teaching us is impregnated into a recurring verse in our studies up here on the board. First John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith the lord is our confidence because he gives us faith in him as a person as a person this was one of the major themes in the excuse me the gospel reload we don't just mentally ascend to some truth about how to get to heaven we actually hold fast to a person to the lord jesus christ he is a person that is our savior It's not even the doctrine about the person that saves us. It's not even the the forensics about how we're saved that save us. It's him. It's the victor, the capital V, the victor. It's him that we cling to. And he's the one who gives us faith in him. He says, believe in the Father, believe in me also. Do you remember? So think about it. At at its most fundamental level, faith is grounded in godly love. If we don't have faith that God loves us, nothing else really matters. If we don't have faith that God loves us, does anything else really matter? And isn't that the same vein of thought that Paul wrote about on the topic of love in 1 Corinthians 13? That in the absence of love, all other virtues are essentially impotent. In the absence of love, all other virtues are essentially impotent, powerless, meaningless, drudgery. Uh, You you use your own words. But if, if love's not there first to arrive, everything that comes after is done in vain up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, part B in the Amplified Classic reads this way <clears throat> If I have sufficient faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, God's love in me, I am nothing, a useless nobody. That's it. You can have all the so called faith in the world, but it's in the absence of love, it's nothing. There's nothing. In other words, without faith in love, we find ourselves experientially outside of the very sphere of God. And once we are outside of said sphere, knowing that there is no fear in love, Allah, la 1 John 4, 18, we are cast into the throes of spiritual death again, experientially, which always results in the same thing, abiding in fear itself which for our purposes here in this series might be dubbed the opposite or the loss of confidence in other words without love we lose our confidence without faith in God's love for us we fear which is the, the opposite of confidence when we're confident we don't have fear because we're sure we're secure in our position When we fear, we lose our confidence. And that's a tragedy. Faith and love, then, is the preeminent feature of being saved even. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Faith and love is the preeminent feature of being saved The verse on the board means absolutely nothing to an unbeliever but everything to us. That verse means nothing to an unbeliever. They probably get sick of looking at it. Sick of seeing the t-shirts, you know, and the Facebook posts and the hats and the, you know, the signs at, at ball games. And, you know, under people's eyes, professional athletes, they probably get sick of it. Like, can we just not do this now? It means nothing to them, but it means everything to us because we are convicted, if we're truly saved, that God loves us, that God loves us enough to save us and keep saving us daily. We are children of God. We mustn't ever forget this. We've been made new, adopted into a family with a father that truly loves us. Upon this wellspring of truth, our faith Rests our confidence lay. Go to Romans eight fourteen. Romans eight verse fourteen. Upon this wellspring of truth, our faith rests, our confidence lay. Romans eight fourteen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Him. Excuse me. Remember, the title of our series is The Lord is Our Confidence. What the Spirit's been teaching us is something quite simple. I know there's a roundabout way we get here. Always seems like at the end of long series, even, there's just a few summary points, but it takes convincing, you see. What the Spirit's been teaching us is something quite simple, but as always, or is mostly the case, we have to step back and see the big picture here. Wisdom says that acquiring her is the very first step to wisdom. Wisdom says herself that acquiring her is the very first step. And furthermore, understanding is the fruit of acquiring said wisdom. So is it fair to say that understanding is tantamount to walking in the light? Is it fair to say that? That understanding is tantamount, the same thing as walking in the light? That is what we are encouraged to do. Indeed, it's true. For when we are in the light, the darkness cannot overcome us. When we are in the light, we cannot be lied to by our senses. We can see with our own eyes the truth about every situation that's Ephesians 5 seeing it all as truth right the good the bad the ugly just turn the lights on you gotta have wisdom and understanding though if you want confidence in the Lord you gotta have these things so we can see with our own eyes the truth about every situation that is or this is what wisdom and understanding does for us for example to understand that God Loves us is wisdom and understanding, is it not? And do you understand as much three weeks ago, three years ago, as you do now? I don't think so. I certainly don't. It takes time to learn and to understand, which is why wisdom says the very first part of wisdom is to acquire wisdom. Make that your goal. Don't just be one of those people like walk around in a fog and say I don't really get it I don't really understand I'm just gonna go with it I can't be bothered too much on TV too many games to watch too many people to see too much frolicking in the world to be had And what suffers is something fundamental like understanding that God loves us if that's your attitude So again, to understand that God loves us is wisdom and understanding. It's actually of prime importance to our confidence in the Lord, is it not? If our confidence is in the Lord, if the Lord is our confidence via our title, is this not paramount? Is this not of prime importance that understanding that God loves us, that that would be our confidence in the Lord? I suppose in many ways we are heading right back to the same principle that's been popping up in just about every series for the past, oh, I don't know, three, four years now. You ready? Drum roll. Yeah. Read your Bible. That should be a capital B, by the way. Read your Bible. I don't know how else to say it. It's astounding to me that I'm going to guess by just by... Probability sake that someone that hears this message either now or in the future is not doing this thing is still thinking that Baldy father is Just trying to oppress them or is or what comes out of my mouth has no real Impetus for you personally as an individual. It's astounding to me that someone would be a member of this church And not be reading their Bible as a part of their daily regimen at this point. I'm not saying something comes up and you have to skip it and you read it later on. Or maybe that day is just a horrible day and whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you seeking the truth diligently, regularly, making time to read your Bible. It's astounding to me that people, just by probability's sake, I'd be willing to bet that at least one person isn't doing that thing. It's incredible. I wonder what they say when they hear it. Do they think they glaze over like an adolescent kid does? Like, oh, here it comes again. Right? Do you think that's what happens? Probably, right? Some kind of weird glaze comes over their soul and they're like, Ugh, here we go. I'm not doing it. So, there. Well, you're the one who suffers, moron. That's right, I said it. Read your Bible. All right, with that said, with what little time we have left, we've already read Proverbs 1 multiple times, but let's pick up the highlight reel and then press on for some more wisdom and confidence in the Lord. Go to Proverbs 1, 1. 1.1. We'll, we'll recap Proverbs 1 quickly, and then we'll travel on with what little time we have left. confidence in the lord this is how you do it proverbs 1 1 the proverbs of solomon the son of david king of israel regarded as the wisest man of his time and god made him rich and all that stuff which has no real bearing other than he was able to speak about uh wealth from firsthand experience and say it's just vanity so don't don't waste your time on that either that's why anyways the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction and in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. And then he goes on. Go to verse 21, though. Verse 21, that's the nature of wisdom in Proverbs. Verse 21, at the head of the noisy streets, she, wisdom, cries out, At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Wisdom isn't shy. Wisdom wants to be heard, wants to be known, makes herself available to all of us. And we're reading it right now. Look at verse 22. So wisdom begins speaking now as it's being personified. Quote, Wisdom says, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel, and did not want my reproof. Fools lack fear of the Lord. We've studied that. You did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. See, that's the thing about wisdom that I suppose is uh, somewhat unique. It has to be in place already. It's something that we spend on life. It's something that we're able to put out in front of us as a shield, (coughs) as a way of escape even. But if she's not there she's going to be standing on the sidelines uh, mocking you, saying, you see, if you took me on the way I wanted you to, I'd be right there to protect you. But you see, I'm over here, and you're way over there, and now this tragedy is here, and this calamity is upon you, and you thought you were storing up nothing, but God has never mocked, and now all of this is on you, and I'm going to stand over here and mock you because you hated knowledge, and you did not choose the fear of the Lord. Let's continue. Verse 30. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. Okay. You want to have it your way? Smarty pants. You want to spurn reproof? You want to say no thank you to wisdom? Okay. Have it your way. Eat the fruit of your own way and be satiated with their own devices, which really is another way of saying you will live in fear. For the waywardness of thy naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me, says wisdom, shall live, how? Securely. Securely. Think of the Lord being our confidence. But he who listens to me shall live securely. And will be at ease from the dread of evil. All right, back to Solomon now. This is chapter 2. Solomon's back to speaking uh, first person instead of wisdom first person. Verse 1 My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Another way of saying, fear the Lord. That is the beginning of understanding, right? Verse 3, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. In other words, you want to be able to choose when you're at that fork in the road? It doesn't always bother some of you where some person just seems so confident in just about every decision they make while you suffer, while you can't seem to make up your mind over a stupid hat or maybe something a little bit more significant whether or not to befriend somebody whether or not to wait on a certain relationship or not doesn't that bother you that you're always lost in those situations while someone goes nope yep yep with complete confidence it's because you lack discernment and that is because you have spurned reproof you have let go of wisdom you have not wanted wisdom and therefore you should lift your voice for understanding for if you cry for discernment the ability to Make decisions at the crossroads of your life. Lift your voice for understanding. What's the point on the board say? What does it say? Read your Bible. Bible. Okay, do I need to say it again? If you want discernment, lift your voice for understanding. There you go. You want to know why some of us have such confidence and you you maybe even be a little envious of it? It's because we read our Bibles and we have confidence in the Lord. The Lord becomes our confidence. It's because we have discernment given to us by grace. We have faith in that discernment because we do that simple thing. And you don't need a high IQ to do it. Imagine that. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, verse, twi- verse 4, and search for her as hidden as for hidden treasures, then you will discern what? The fear of the Lord. You see, that's like the first fork in the road. If you don't fear the Lord, all else is gone. If you don't take that path, if that's the first fork, fear the Lord, don't fear the Lord. If you don't take that pathway, all is lost after that. Anything on the other pathway is garbage. Is just going to You won't have any real discernment because you don't have the fear of the Lord backing you. That's what scripture says. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. The prior precipitates the latter. Verse 6, and then i got to stop here. My voice is about ready to blow out. For the Lord gives wisdom. You see it? The Lord gives wisdom, another element of your confidence in Him. For the Lord gives wisdom, From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul discretion will guard you understanding will watch over you aka to fear the Lord is to have or live a life of security to deliver you from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways to deliver you from the strange woman, from her adulteress, for from the adulteress who flatters you with her words. And that's all I can do for this evening. Amen? Uh, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for imparting wisdom to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for encouraging us to acquire said wisdom, for it is in that wisdom that we gain understanding And it's by means of understanding that we're able to gain discernment. And that is very much a part of our confidence before this world, Father. Let that be part of our victory through faith. We just ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.